Well, thank you so much, worship team, and, and Caleb, that was absolutely excellent. I have to remember that the kids are dismissed, so I don't have to be horribly offended at this moment of our service every time. Now, that is so exciting, and we are excited for uh, those kids as they go and, and hear an age-appropriate lesson for them as well to help them grasp the word that we stand on in our lives. Well, if you were unable to join us last week, we're spending three weeks together in Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over there to Acts 17. This is kind of right square in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, he, he spent time in Thessalonica. And while in Thessalonica, he, after and as presenting the gospel, is ultimately greeted by a mob. And he ultimately scatters south about 40 miles to Berea, what we're going to be examining this morning. And it's safe to say in this way, even though God used his persecution and and traveling down to Berea, that it was probably could be categorized as a bad experience, right? I mean, if, if we're thinking from a human perspective and we're assessing how did camp go this week, so we asked John, hey, how did camp go this week? And he says, it was great. But we had to wrap up camp a little bit earlier than we planned because a mob of adults formed. They didn't like what we were teaching or who we were teaching, and so they tried to hurt us as leaders. Besides that, camp was great. Uh, We would immediately think, well, that at least could be categorized as a bad experience at camp. And Paul experiences then what we would call, I think, fair to say, a, a bad experience. But fortunately, in God's Word this morning, as we look at Acts 17, you and I are able to, to gain some key insights to apply to our life. Of what happens in life, what do I do after experiencing a, a bad experience? Something I didn't draw up, but nevertheless, it has taken place. Whether it was a trial, a season of grief or trauma, what do I do now? How do I move on in my life? And specifically, if we have seasons of uncomfortableness in sharing the gospel. Now, you and I will probably never face a mob, and we, and we thank the Lord for that, that we're, we're able to, to live in a country in which we have these religious freedoms that give us these opportunities to freely express the gospel without really fear of, at the very least, physical persecution at all. But you and I are certainly called to as Christians to have conversations that are, at the very least, a little bit awkward. And I want to encourage you as we begin our our, our text this morning that awkward conversations change lives. Awkward conversations, they change lives. And so as Christians who are called to, to carry the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Christ, our only hope, as we present this message that may be a stumbling block, may be offensive to others, and it may be an uncomfortable conversation we have with those around us, our family members, our friends, and and those God has designedly uh, and and sovereignly placed around us in our lives. There may be awkward conversations, but how do we respond after a bad experience? So open up your Bibles, and and we're going to discover together two key principles, two key elements that you and I can take and apply to our lives, and I truly believe that if we do so, I truly believe that if we do so, it will give us incredible encouragement after experiencing hardships. But secondly, as a church family, I believe it will provide us with unbelievable endurance, as just like we sang together a few moments ago, all other ground is sinking sand. 
On Christ the solid rock I stand. So let's begin in our text this morning as we notice first and foremost that bad experiences must fuel rather than foil evangelistic engagements. Evangelistic meaning that that word for the gospel, we're called to proclaim, to share, to articulate the gospel, the good news and hope of Christ. And why is it called good news? It's good news because the reality is there's bad news, correct? The bad news is every one of us is is dead in our sin, that none of us have pleased God, that we're rebels against God. We all come short of the glory of God. The bad news is that all of us on our own, we are without hope. And unless you first understand the, the seriousness of our bad news, the gospel This good news will never truly make sense. When you understand and embrace the reality of the bad news, the good news is hope. So when you and I experience bad experiences, it must fuel rather than foil evangelistic engagements. I'm going to give three observations from verses 10 through 12. After Paul experiences these bad experiences, we notice first that, that Paul's target did not change. Just like with last week, his target does not change. He still targets those with a biblical background. You remember last week, he goes into what group of body, what little area we said was kind of like local churches that began hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, these things called synagogues. These people that held the law, the first five books of the Bible, and, and the Word of God in high esteem. That was his first target, And he has this bad experience. He smuggled 40 miles south to Berea. And look what he does again. Where do you think he goes? He goes to the synagogue. Look at verse 10. From the ESV, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to grab one from the the pew back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that as a gift uh, from us to you. Verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, Paul did not plan to go to Berea at this point in time. It may have been on his long-term missionary itinerary to go to the Bereans. But we can say with confidence it was not going to be at this time. Do you think that's fair to say? He probably didn't think, let's go to the Thessalonians, and then they're going to try and kill us, and then we'll go to Berea. It was, it was an unplanned bad experience. It was not on his missionary itinerary, but, but, but it was on God's missionary itinerary. Have you ever experienced something in life that you would certainly classify as a bad experience in a Christian context? But as time began to go by, you might look and say, God, you know what? I would have never drawn it up that way. But I understand you're working still. Isn't that really the Christian story? Every one of our stories, if you know Christ, this is our story of God's goodness and His faithfulness in our lives. The God through even broken and bad decisions that we make, He is still able to do something incredible for His kingdom and His glory. And so they don't plan the itinerary to come here right away, but still, Paul has in his mind to go to these same people first and foremost. Now, you and I in life, we face what's called the pendulum. Third time's a charm. The pendulum effect. You ever done that? You had a bad experience over here, so what did you do the second opportunity? And you completely overcorrect. 
Paul has a bad experience in missions, but does he overcorrect? No. He stays going to the people that claim to love the Word of God. That's who he targets and he prioritizes. That's who we likewise, no matter the hardships you and I are going to experience in life, we will have hardships. The Word says what? Take heart. Take heart. Because we're people not of this world. We're adopted into the kingdom of God. We will face hardships. And I don't say that to minimize yours. I realize full well that there is a wealth of people in here that have experienced hardships I could never imagine. And yet we follow one. How quickly do I forget that we follow one who was crucified on a cross by this world? And so that should be our first hint right away. That hardships will come, but even if they come, they must not prevent me and they must not prevent us from being a people that, that intentionally target others to present the gospel to them. There's no accidences and there's no coincidences in life. So first we see that, that despite the bad experience, his target did not change, but secondly, Paul's final authority did not change. And what was his final authority? The sufficiency of Scripture. We talked about it last week. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, is our final authority for all things in life, deed, practice, and belief. That doesn't change. Look at, look at verse 11 with me. It says, Now these Jews, speaking of those in, in, uh, the Bere of the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, doing what? Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And Paul's commitment to the Scriptures is rewarded as he goes to the Bereans, and they're described as what? They're described as being noble. Noble. This is the only place in Acts where that description, these individuals that are eager, zealous, excited, literally depending on that word in this context, is, is one that is studiously uncovering an answer to a question. They hear the gospel message of Christ being the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come and, and to live a sinless life and to maintain all the demands of the Old Testament. And he would be crucified, dead and buried, and yet he would raise again from the dead. He would ascend to heaven and he is coming again. But we can have hope by turning and trusting in him alone. They hear this gospel message and they hear it and what do they do? Do they write him off? Do they chase them off? What do they do with the content? It says they what? They examined it. By what? By their final authority, which is what? The Scriptures. You and I are a people of the book. We are people of the book. And so may, we, may it be said of us like it was the Bereans, that we were zealous, that we were noble in our love and our commitment to the Word of God. What a sweet reminder that you and I can have in our lives. Now, life is changing on a consistent basis. Our culture may change. Well, certainly, TKs will here in a, for, in a few months, right? Our language may change. We still don't speak Aramaic or Koine Greek in the writing of the first century. We don't still do that. Our methods may change. Our clothing may change. I'm pretty sure, though they say clothing is cyclical, first century garb is not coming back in style anytime soon, or at least I hope not. That would be, I don't even, that'd be disturbing. I don't want to see that anytime soon. 
But even though our methods may change, our principles never do. There's an old saying that I try to remind myself quite, quite often, and it goes like this. Methods are many. Principles are few. Methods may change, but principles never do. It's kind of catchy, isn't it? It's a reminder that though the methods of the different culture in which the gospel is being engaged may flavor itself differently, just as they probably did when you and I were little kids, the content of the gospel, the message does not change. We stand on the once and for all delivered gospel message delivered to the saints once for all. And we're uncompromising in our commitment to the Word of God. The content does not change, but our methods may indeed flex for the glory of God. So Paul's target does not change. His final authority does not change. And thirdly, his intentions do not change. Paul's intentions remained. And what were they? The persuasion of others to commit themselves to Christ. Look at verse 12. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women or high standing as well as men. The result is that, is that many of them placed their, their faith and trust in Christ. Now that word here, believed, we, uh, it's important for us as a, as a regular reminder that, that just a word in, has a large range of meanings. So what determines our meaning? Context helps to give us our meaning. The word, God bless you, the, the word, the word, the word belief here, and we may say, I believe that's true, a head knowledge type. I believe that's true. I agree with you. But that's not just the type of belief. Certainly, they would have done that. These, these Jews here would have placed their faith and trust in, in, in Christ as they examined the gospel message with the Scriptures. It's not just that they believed it up here, but literally in the context, the word is that of entrusting yourself to it. It's entrusting yourself to another, surrendering your authority into another. So with that understanding, it says many of them therefore believed. Many of them entrusted their lives to Christ. I think it's always interesting. Have you ever done this, had a conversation with somebody and asked them if they were, had ever trusted Christ? And see if their reflex is to say, well, I grew up in church. You ever had that conversation before? I did ask, did you grow up in church? Have you ever entrusted yourself to Christ? And that's Paul's desire. And by God's grace, just like a few happened in Thessalonica, these, these, these ethnic Greek men and women that have entrusted themselves, become Jewish believers, believers in God, they likewise, in addition to a great number of, of Jewish Bereans, they place their faith, they entrust themselves to Jesus Christ, despite the hardships that that may bring into their lives. This is the call of Christ that he still has for us. And this is an offensive message still. The call to Christ is a call to say there is no hope in the rest of the world. Once again, you and I sang it a moment ago. Do you realize that? To sing that Christ alone is a solid rock in which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand is to say all other religions, all other worldviews are sinking sand the chasing after popularity, the chasing after the things of our world that you and I, our hearts are sometimes temporarily captivated by, is sinking sand. The intentions for Paul stay the same despite the bad experience. 
for people to surrender and entrust themselves to Christ. And for you and I, church, those must remain the bottom line goals of our lives as well. To see others entrust themselves to Christ and become disciples who make disciples. So, so first, bad experiences must fuel rather than foil evangelistic engagements. And secondly, the church must brace itself for the continuing attacks of the enemy. The church must brace itself for the continuing attacks of the enemy. How do we do this? In two ways. First is this, by focusing on the great commission in the face of distracting drama, by focusing on the great commission in the face of distracting drama. Now listen to this. In two weeks, our own Zach Martin, one of our elders in a, in a bin, is that correct, a bin? I told some, that's not, he's not a bin this whole time. I don't even know you. Right? So we're both just Lynn's. Living in Nacogdoches, right? Credibility there. I'm going to move on. Okay, so anyway, Zach is going to be walking us through Matthew chapter 28 as a church family. We're going to be looking at our great commission, our call to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. Why do I reference that here? Because he's going to go into a greater depth of what we're going to talk about in 13 and 14. That you and I must handle the attacks of the enemy by focusing on the Great Commission in the face of distracting drama. And there's two legs to this in our life. The Lord has called us and equipped us as the church to have a global focus of missions and a local focus on missions. A global focus on making disciples and a local focus on making disciples. Global and local. Global and Good, don't make me keep going. I'm just going to keep going and see what happened. And so let's look at our text here. Look at 13. Never forgetting our global commitment to making disciples. 13 and 14. It says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. Just as the gospel had spread to the Bereans, just as that took place like it did in Thessalonica, the honey of the gospel, what followed? The flies of false teachers and troublemakers. You notice that? The gospel is good news. It is sweet like honey. And when there's honey, what should we expect? Some flies. Just like flies to honey. The false teachers come down to begin to start trouble for them. And so when they hear word about it, what do they do for Paul? They know Paul's been called to, to take the gospel to the nations. So what do they do for him? They smuggle him out of town by sea. Why? Because they cannot allow the risk of Paul being captured to threaten the global message and his global calling to make disciples. Church, you and I must likewise be intentional when we experience hardships and difficulties in our lives to not allow those to cause us to recluse ourselves. It's natural, isn't it? When we have a bad experience, what do we instinctively do in a relationship? We enclose ourselves. We gather the horses. We pull up the drawbridge. And we look into ourselves. As a church, we can do the same thing. And this really is logical and it's natural. One of the areas I think is a good example of this is in athletics. 
We have several athletes here, a part of our church family. And have you ever seen a professional athlete or somebody that, that had a severe knee injury? You ever seen that? Great athlete, incredible abilities, athletic giftings. They have a knee injury, and then they interview them after months of rehab, intensive rehab, grinding and pushing and strength gaining on that leg. And, and the doctors clear the athlete to participate back in the sport. And they interview, or you ask these athletes, many of you that have had knee surgeries, they ask them afterwards, well, how do you feel? And the athlete says something like this, I know that I can play. I know that my knee is okay. But I still have trouble wanting to plant on it and push off of it. You ever heard of that before? They're able to do so, but they have this mental barrier to truly trust that it's going to stand up again because they have this fear of getting hurt once again. You and I, when we have bad experiences, whether it's in our marriage, in our friendships, and certainly in making disciples and as a church family, when we have a bad or difficult experience, we can so be afraid of that happening again that we abandon our call to make disciples, not just at home, but globally. And so, TK, I appreciate your faithfulness. And you know, when you give to Grace Bible Church, we support missionaries as well. You give indirectly to missionaries you probably have never actually met in your life. And I appreciate the job. And here in the future, we're going to have more of an emphasis of that in our foyer. And, and Cynthia and Roman have done a great job and, uh, and our elders in, in making that a reality coming forward. But God calls us to have an emphasis in global missions and one in which we must not forget. So we must not forget global missions, but we also must not abandon our local commitment to make disciples. Six little words in 14, as he continues on. So Paul is smuggled out by way of the sea, and what about Paul and Silas? It says, but Silas, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy, but Silas and Timothy, what'd they do? They remain there. Paul is sent out, but Silas and Timothy remain in Berea to do what? One would presume to train up this young church that has now started. Where there used to be a synagogue, there's at least enough now for a church. And they stay and they train these individuals up. Now, we know as the story goes on, they don't stay very long. They don't stay there very long. We'll see that next week as he goes on to Athens. Spoiler alert, that's where he gets smuggled out to. They don't stay very long, but they do stay there to make disciples locally where they're already at. Not all of us are going to be called by God to go overseas for missions. But God in his good sovereignty has appointed you and I to make disciples, and I can say this with confidence, right here in Nacogdoches County. That is not an accident. God has deployed you and I right here in Nacogdoches County to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's a privilege that we should not shy away from, but it's a responsibility and a weight on our shoulders that we should feel because God has given that to us. Did you notice that? When the church comes to Christ here, when we see the Bereans come to Christ, Paul doesn't go rent a bus and say, congratulations, you're following me. We're going to Athens. They stay there. And Acts, the Ethiopian that comes to Christ, he doesn't join him. What does he do? Historically, he goes back to, to Ethiopia. And he brings the gospel back with him. 
Remember the demoniac who's, who's possessed, this, this man, Legion, that has thousands of demons. He comes to Christ, and what does he do when they get on the boat to leave? He wants to go with Jesus physically. Do you remember that? Let me go with you. And what does Jesus tell him? No. You go back home. You go back home. Just because the Lord may not call you and I personally and physically to, go, to do global missions, it is not a lesser call to faithfully make disciples right here in our places of work, in our places of living, and our places in the line as we wait. God is good. and He is faithful. He didn't deploy you and I where he did by accident. So the church must brace itself for the continuing attacks of the enemy by focusing on the Great Commission in the face of distracting drama. And, and secondly, we do so by, by fearlessly working together as Christ's body. We must focus on the Great Commission in the face of distracting drama. And secondly, by, by fearlessly working together as Christ's body. When, when drama comes, we must focus fearlessly on working together as Christ's body. Look at verse 15. It says, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from, from, uh, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Two general giftings. We have those that, that speak, Timothy, Silas, and Paul. There may be others, but we know at least those three. Now, this is, this is important to catch. There's, there's these speaking gifts, but all of us are called to speak the gospel. You know what we're saying? You may not be called to, to, to preach or to teach in a group context, a small group or Sunday school class or something like that, but we're all called to be able to teach on the gospel in our homes, in our relationships, in one-on-one settings. We're all called to understand the gospel and the word well enough. We begin to walk somebody else through it to grasp the story of God well enough to pass it on to the next generation behind us, beside us, and ahead of us. And so there's those that speak, speaking gifts, but there's also those that have these, I just classified them as conducting gifts. Conducting gifts. Remember verse 15? Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Conducting gifts. We often overlook this. If Paul doesn't have people to conduct his ministry, what happens to Paul? He's not going to make it very far, is he? There is this gigantic team of people that is carrying his letters, that's providing support to him while he's in prison later on, that's helping him in arrangements, giving him meals, places to stay, providing for his needs. He has people that are conducting ministry. At first, I wanted to call this people. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. But I don't think that's accurate. Because all of the gifts that the Lord has given us, they're His. And they're for the advancement of His kingdom. And by exercising them, they're all serving the Lord. But God has given each of us certain giftings in our life to advance the gospel. Gifts that require wisdom as we deploy them on a daily basis. I encourage you, Bobby spoke about the connection uh, card on the back of your bulletin, but there's also a card that says serve. I encourage you to take one of those home with you. Not just those so, so that when Chick and Millie have to come and refill our uh, pews, we can make it hard on them. But I encourage you to take one of those home with you and place it on your refrigerator. 
And every time you see it, to ask the Lord, Lord, who do you want me to serve? Lord, how do you want me to serve? Not only in our local church context, but even today. How do you want me to serve? All of us have been called to both speak the gospel and to conduct ministry in the gospel. Praise God that we're not alone, but He's given us a family to do ministry, to support ministry, and to make disciples together. Is that good? That's good. Let's look at our next step. Our next step is this, that God has placed Bereans in Nacogdoches for us to engage. Probably not literally. I doubt there's a large pocket of, I, I don't know the area well enough. I'm assuming there's not like a neighborhood complex of Bereans that are living here. If so, that's incredible. We're going to go check it out. Right? But our next step is that God has sovereignly and in his good pleasure, he has placed Bereans. He has placed people that have had a commitment to the word of God right here in Nacogdoches for you and I to engage. As you've listened to this sermon, I encourage you I bet the Spirit is probably placed upon your heart and your mind. People that you know that are, maybe they had bad experiences and they're disconnected from the safety and the joy of a local church fellowship. I'd encourage you to pray for them this week and look for an opportunity to engage them, to love them, to serve them, to invite them, to engage them with the gospel. When the enemy attacks, when lions roam, and they attack a pack, what's their goal? What do they want more than anything? To shave off one from the herd. Because they know that individual is weak. You and I have Bereans in our own community that are not connected in any serious fellowship in a local church, a gospel-teaching church. It's our call to go after them, to, to put our arms around them, to love them, and to point them to Christ and the goodness of a local church fellowship. It's our responsibility as camp in the city is here this week for these kids and their families to know that we love them and we care for them and Christ is better than all the trappings of the world. That he is worth not simply believing but also entrusting their lives to them for the rest of their lives. What are the next steps that the Lord has from you from this text? He is good. If you've not followed him in, in baptism, likewise, we encourage you next week, if you've already noticed in your bulletin, next Sunday, I'll be having a baptism class at 9 o'clock in the Discovery Building, the first room on your left. You pray this week, Lord, what next step do you have for me? You're good, your word is true, and all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that we can gather together as your people we thank you, God, that your word is true, that your promises endure forever. Lord, your word says that blessed is the one who takes refuge in you. So God, I pray for anybody that is burdened this morning that they would take refuge in you, that they would entrust themselves to you. Father, we pray for our members that are burdened this week, that are grieving, that are hurting. We pray, God, that your spirit would encourage them. We pray, God, knowing that the bad experiences that may befall us even this week, we trust that you're still good, 
You're still shaping us into the image of Christ. You're still worthy of our trust. We pray, God, you would provide endurance for those little campers. We pray you would, you would do a work upon their heart. We pray that you would bless the leaders that have come also to invest in our young ones. God, that your name would be made great in Nacogdoches and to the ends of the world. We're unashamed to be your people. Help that to be true in every relationship of our life. We thank you. We thank you for engaging us and entrusting us with the gospel. In Christ's name, all God's people said together, amen. I'm asking now on behalf of the elders, uh, Ben Dobson uh, is going to come forward and and share a a special word of recognition. And so, uh, Ben, in addition to Ben, I've got two guys. I know I I saw at least one in here. Very good. All right, Scott LeGraff is going to come forward. Very good. And Keith Hubbard. There he is. It's like, where's Waldo? I'm not quite waiting to to find them. Very good. So let's, let's welcome these men.